Hello, this is Aaron Wren, and welcome back to the podcast. In addition to my own podcast, I'm also a semi-regular uh, guest on the City Journal 10 Blocks podcast. And Nicole Jelinas and I recently joined Seth Barron to discuss updates in Chicago and New York. So I'm including the audio of that here so you don't have to find it anywhere else. And so I hope you enjoy. Welcome back to the 10 Blocks podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Coming up on the show today, my colleague Seth Barron invited two of our contributing editors, Nicole Gelinas and Aaron Wren, to give us an update on recent developments in two of the nation's big cities, New York, where we are, and where you might hear some of the construction sounds we're living with these days, and Chicago. There's been a lot of developments in both cities lately. A few weeks ago, Chicago elected its first black woman as mayor of the city. Her name, Lori Lightfoot, and she's a political outsider in a town traditionally known for its machine politics. The day before that election, New York's state legislature passed the country's first-ever congestion pricing plan, which will allow the state and city to charge drivers entering the most crowded parts of Manhattan. We'll have Nicole Gelinas to give us the details on the podcast about that and Aaron Wren on Chicago. But a few more announcements before we get started. First, City Journal readers will be happy to know the spring 2019 issue has officially arrived at our offices, and we'll start rolling out essays from the issue in the weeks to come. Head over to the website, though, to learn more about it, and better, subscribe to the magazine. Second, if you live in the New York metro area and you're interested in local politics and policy, don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter, The Beat. You can find it at www.thebeatmi.com. Lastly, don't forget to follow City Journal on Instagram. You can find us there at cityjournal underscore mi. That's it for me. After the music, Seth Barron will talk with Aaron Wren and Nicole Gelinas. We hope you enjoy. Aaron, welcome back to 10 Blocks. Thanks for having me back again. So our listeners might not know this, but uh, the city of Chicago had a big election for mayor a few weeks ago. Is that correct? Uh, Yes, they did. And the winner was Lori Lightfoot, a Democrat. What, What do you know about her? Well, she is someone who's largely an outsider to politics. In many ways, she's the classic uh, face of the new Chicago. She's not from Chicago originally. She grew up in a small city outside of Canton, Ohio, went to the University of Michigan, then attended law school at the University of Chicago, and went to work for Meyer Brown, one of the most prestigious law firms in the city. So she's a representative of essentially the new professional class of Chicago. She's been involved, you know, she worked in city government a bit uh, in various agencies, and then she was also a federal prosecutor uh, for a while. So she's no stranger to public service, but she was never part of the political class of the city. And so it'll be interesting to see uh, how how she does as mayor. I mean, people who don't necessarily know a lot about Chicago nevertheless uh, associate the city with a certain brand of machine politics. Uh, I mean, this is the long history uh, of um, of Chicago. You know, I'm thinking of that book Boss by um, Mike Royko. By Mike Royko, and uh, you know the dailies and Rahm Emanuel. Uh, so, is this a departure? Does this represent? 
uh, a radical change for Chicago? You'd have to say that uh, Lightfoot getting elected is the definitive proof that the machine as traditionally understood is dead. Now, old school machine politics was really essentially a patronage operation. You know, people got jobs and in return they were supposed to, you know, essentially deliver the votes and the rewards or whatever. That sort of machine has long been gone. But there was a very powerful political establishment in the Cook County Democratic Party uh, that basically was very difficult for anyone to overcome. You know, Mayor Daley, uh, the second uh, Mayor Daley. Uh, steamrolled for like five terms over people. Then he sort of handed the baton off to his uh, hand-picked successor, Rahm Emanuel. Uh, in this election, it was wide open. There were a huge number of candidates in the first round. Coming into the second round, Lori Lightfoot's opponent, Tody Preckwinkle, was the chairman of the county's Democratic Party and a long-term insider who was crushed. So the power of the political class in, you know, certainly winning the mayoral election, uh, is is certainly much less than it, than it was. This is a, this is really unprecedented for the city. So, what does this portend? Is Lori Lightfoot going to, you know, overturn the way th- you know, the, the way business is done in Chicago, the Chicago way, as it were? Well, the the previous two mayors have essentially governed in a coalition with the business community, uh, focused around building up the loop. And sort of uh, the the new economy of Chicago, which they, they have often felt they have this you call it the second city complex, this idea that they have this a bit of an inferiority complex towards the coast and need to really work hard to make sure they're a global player. Um, there's been a lot of talk about the need to bring the rest of Chicago uh, along with the downtown, which is a legitimate need. But unlike some of the hardcore progressive activists, some of whom were elected to the city council, I don't see Lori Lightfoot as someone who's going to really attack the business community. In fact, she uh, very quickly got on board with a massive real estate development there that was going to get a lot of TIF subsidies. So I would see her as sort of a a voice of continuity with uh, the traditional way of economic development, but hopefully a more open political system there and someone who's also able to essentially bring in some of these other constituencies in other parts of the city that haven't been there. So so I think there's some continuity, but maybe with change. Well, over the last few years, uh, a big story coming out of Chicago has been um, crime and uh, the, the number of shootings and murders, uh, particularly in the south and west side of Chicago. Um, what's going on with crime now and what is Lightfoot going to do? Well, the good news uh, for her and for the city is that crime has been in decline, particularly murders. Murder rate was down again last year, certainly still elevated by New York standards, uh, but down from from where it had been. And then so far this year, the number of murders in Chicago has been down 30 percent. So that's a significant drop. And so with crime sort of trending in the right direction, uh, that will hopefully, you know, she won't take she hopefully won't take office under some immense crisis of policing uh, as things seem to be heading the right direction. Obviously, crime is still going to be continue to be uh, a big focus uh, of her administration. But those, those numbers are heading the right direction. Why do you think crime is heading in the right direction? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. Um, to be honest, I don't know. The 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 police department has uh, you know put this new uh, superintendent in place, who seems to have been rather effective. Uh, I don't believe Lightfoot has committed to replacing him, um, but I think maybe the leadership ha- has improved there a bit, and they've continued to you know evolve their tactics. And then there's there's some of these things that are really just a little unpredictable. So I don't want to claim that I have a a great 
handle on exactly why it happened, but I think it's certainly very good good news. We hear a lot about the public finances in Illinois, which um, sound like they're kind of dire. Uh, what's the situation in Chicago? All levels of government in Illinois have uh, horrific finances. So the state uh, obviously has huge problems. The city does as well. Uh, just in pension debt, unfunded pension debt alone in the city, it's like $28 billion outstanding. Uh, local analyst Ted Dabrowski has added up the share of all the unfunded liabilities in the state that are essentially attributable to Chicago's taxpayers in some way and came up with $130 billion. So that's an enormous liability, most of which is in the form of pensions that cannot be touched as per the Illinois Supreme Court rulings. And then the just the regular operating budget is not in great shape either. Uh, she's going to have to put a budget together pretty quickly uh, by the early fall, and they're already projecting a, a deficit of as much as $800 million. And so that's going to have to be dealt with. Um, you know, the city has routinely used financing gimmicks to essentially balance balance the budget. So she's going to have a, a tremendous financial challenge. There is no doubt. I mean, Rahm did everything he could to try to get out from under uh, some of these liabilities, but he really didn't wasn't able to make that much progress in, in restructuring things and, and sort of set the city on a, a, a tax increase path, some of which has already kicked in, but much of which is scheduled to uh, come into force during the next term. So, uh, you know, they're going to have to start coughing up over a billion dollars additional per year towards pensions in the not-too-distant future, and where that money's going to come from is a big question mark. Well, with her resounding, like, three or four to one victory, it seems like she has some political capital. I mean, can she claim a mandate and start, you know, cutting the budget? Well, again, I think the budget's going to be tough to cut, uh, given that, you know, much of this financial liability is for, for you know, loans that have been taken out, bonds that have been sold, uh, pensions that have to be funded. Again, it can't be restructured as per, you know, the, the Illinois Supreme Court. Uh, obviously, you know, she's probably not going to want to cut back on the amount of money they're spending on the police, maybe even want to spend more money on police. There are contracts coming out with the teachers and the firefighters and the police. And so uh, it's, you know, Rahm Emanuel did do some budget cuts, and he did things like close half, close half the city's mental health clinics and things of that nature. There's just not a lot of big-dollar items you could really cut and Fix the government. I think that's one of the things that Bruce Rauner discovered when he came in as the Republican governor of the state. You know, he thought he could do something maybe like what Scott Walker did in, in, in Wisconsin, but Wisconsin's pensions are in great shape. So he, you know, Wisconsin had a sort of a budget issue, but they didn't have this huge liability issue. And that, you know, it's not, you can't cut fraud and waste to get out from underneath the kind of debts that you have in Chicago. I mean, essentially, they're going to have to pay up, and that's going to mean tax increases. Nicole, Nicole Gelinas, uh, our uh, resident expert on New York City finances, the MTA. Um, you've written recently a lot about congestion pricing, which, you know, you've been in favor of. And now the new New York State budget uh, has a provision for congestion pricing, but you're not that happy. Yeah, I'm like John Kerry. I was in favor of it until I was against it. And of course, in theory, 
Congestion pricing is an economically sound idea that if you think about Manhattan's congested streets, we're not going to be making any new street space, yet we have record demand for that street space. We have a record number of cars on the road in the form of Ubers and Lyfts that have made t taking a car cheaper. We have a record number of trucks in, in the form of Amazon deliveries, you know, UPS and FedEx trucks out on the streets, and you have a record number of pedestrians. And so you can't take space away from the pedestrians to give over to the cars. So we, you're not going to make any more. So you have to address the demand side. You can do that by pricing the streets that, in effect, if you were using a resource that was free, which is driving your car or your truck on a Manhattan street, effective in 18 months from now, it will cost probably $12 to bring a car into Manhattan below 60th Street and well above $20, $25 for a truck, although we don't know the exact prices yet. But the pro so again, perfectly valid economic idea, but the problem with this law is that it's essentially a state revenue takeover of local resources. If we think about who pays to maintain the streets, to fill in potholes, repave the streets, keep up the East River bridges, which are the way that most of the people who are coming into Manhattan, if they're not already paying a toll, that's how they're coming in. It's city taxpayers that pay these costs, which are well more than a billion dollars a year. But yet all of the revenue that's now going to be generated from these streets is going to go to the state because the state runs the transit system. Now, of course, the state is the, the, the MTA, the state run transit authority, is supposed to spend this money on improving public transit for city residents, city workers, city visitors. But the city is not going to have very much of a say on how that money is spent, that those decisions will be made at the state level or at a board level where the city has very little representation. And so we've seen uh, a long history of money being taken out of the city for mass transit and going disproportionately to suburban transit projects because the suburbs are the swing districts. If, you, if you're if you running for governor or you are governor and you want to get people to vote for you, if you're a Democrat, New York City is already going to vote for you. It's the suburbs that could go either way depending on the political climate. So the politicians of either party, they always like to make the suburbs happy, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with some of these suburban projects that they're building, but is are they being paid for equitably? Not really. If you if you think about uh, East Side Access, the project to bring Long Island Railroad trains to the East Side of Manhattan, twelve billion dollar project has consumed multiple MTA investment programs over the past fifteen years or so. But there's no there's nothing equivalent to congestion pricing where if you're if you have property along this Long Island corridor where the property will be worth more because of this, they never did anything like an extra tax to capture that value. And so the city is paying a disproportionate share. Well, I mean, just on a basic level, and I'm kind of confused about this, is the point of congestion pricing to reduce traffic or to raise money? Yes. 
but the 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 longer answer is that we don't really know because if you look at the language of the the bill that the governor signed into or I guess governor hasn't technically signed the state budget but if you look at the the proposed law that the senate and the assembly sent to the governor the there's nothing that indicates a congestion goal in the language of the law in other words there's nothing that says we want to improve Manhattan traffic speeds by 20%, or we want to reduce the number of cars and trucks by 20%. They mention congestion, but they don't say what the goal here is. So how how can you know five years from now if they accomplish this goal? And this isn't like a cigarette tax where it's not a cigarette tax has never been a large portion of New York City's budget. When Bloomberg increased the cigarette tax, he was very clear that he would like to collect no revenue from the cigarette tax. The whole purpose of this was to get people not to smoke. But in this case, the MTA needs a billion and a half dollars worth of congestion pricing revenue every single year in order to service the bonds that they're going to take out. Probably $15, $20 billion worth of long-term debt, you know, 20 to 40-year borrowing. So the purpose here is not to reduce congestion so that they don't take in these revenues. And so it's it, it can be seen more as a tax on congestion in that they don't they don't want to be on the side of the Laffer curve where they're actually reducing the activity too much, because then that means they they wouldn't have money to service all of this debt that they're going to take out. So if people are expecting extreme reductions in the traffic that's coming through Manhattan, they may be disappointed. Aaron, um, I know you've studied or looked at uh, various uh, toll roads across the country and privatization of roads. I, I wonder what kind of perspective you have on congestion pricing, given you know what's happened in other jurisdictions. Uh, well, maybe it doesn't relate. Well, maybe congestion pricing relate. is uh, something that has been put in place in other cities overseas. Singapore has had it for a long time. London famously in- introduced a congestion pricing charge. Uh, Stockholm has it. So this is not something that is new. Um, and and so I think the idea, I would be with Nicole, the idea of a congestion price for people coming into Manhattan, particularly tolling those East River bridges or however exactly they're going to be implementing this this makes eminent amount of sense, particularly because we have such great public transit and, uh, and there's no prospect of widening these streets. So it makes sense in terms of the actual uh, uh, putting in place of a congestion fee. The question is, like, how is it done? And I think Nicole has raised some very cogent objections to it. You said something interesting there, um, that New York has such great transit <laughs> because, um, I mean, that's not something you'd hear a lot of New Yorkers be bragging about lately. Um, Nicole, but but on the other end, we do have great transit. Yeah, I mean, it is nice to hear Aaron say that in a non-sarcastic tone. And it is true that if you were to look at other American cities, New York has the most extensive, extensive transit system. And even though it has, it declined in service between 2013 to the beginning of last year, it is a reliable system where half the people in New York don't have to have a car. And you really can't say that about other major cities. I mean, even places like Washington, Boston. I lived in Chicago, and I did not own a car for a while. 
And you can get around Chicago without a car, but it's not that convenient. Their subway system is entirely downtown focused. It's essentially a commuter rail system for people who work in the loop, whereas here in New York, I've never once said to myself, it would be great if I had a car. I mean, it's just not something that even occurs to me because we do have, you know, great, great coverage. I mean, it's not perfect, but, you know, I think we still have one of the top 10 ridership systems in the world uh, in terms of, like, uh, the number of people who are riding it. So, yeah, could it be better? Uh, certainly. Uh, but I, I think we should appreciate the fact that it does make living here without a car something that does not seem like a second-class option, but just seems like the default option. So, um, And I, I'll give you some, some numbers if you want to put some sure. statistics to the idea. Is the subway system getting worse or better? We know clearly that it got worse for the, the five years leading up to early 2018. But the good news is that it is getting better. If you, if you look at the MTA's metrics, they, they just had a board meeting uh, almost 80% of weekday uh, trains were on time in March compared to 65% for the previous March. And if you look at the 12-month average, about 71% of trains are on time compared to 63% for the 12 months looking back to the previous year. So, yes, they are. And the number of uh, weekday trains delayed uh, for the past year, it's been about 51000 a month. For the year before that, it was 64000 So the good news is that the governor, you know, very, very famously, almost, ten year, almost two years ago, he said the MTA was in a state of crisis. He was taking ownership of this problem. And they have turned things around, not to, to, to the sense that they're actually better and that we can declare victory, but they have stopped this slide that was going on for half a decade. And the new management team seems to realize that they need to do a lot better. So what does that mean for the future? You know, who knows? But things are not getting worse anymore. Um, that reminds me, uh, recently, or in the last couple of years, um, Mayor de Blasio, um, oddly, he made a virtue of disowning any responsibility for the subways. And he would always say, this is the mayor's, this is not the mayor's problem, this is the governor's problem. This is Cuomo's MTA. He loved to say this. And it seemed like a very strange... Uh, I mean, you know, in New York City, you think about mayors like Koch or Giuliani or Bloomberg who would embrace difficulties and say, you know, I'm going to solve this. I'm a nuts and bolts guy. Um, and maybe the MTA isn't de Blasio's, you know, in his bailiwick, but it still seemed like an odd thing to do. And it seemed kind of uh, emblematic of his governance style. Um, what are some of the problems that you see in New York now, both of you, um, that maybe stem from the mayor's hand hands-off uh, executive approach or, you know, just generally speaking, as, you know, we go over to the next couple of years, he seems to have be focused on his national reputation. Um, what, what is he missing? What, what do we need here? Well, I think you're right that if, if you think about every mayor's broad problem that he wanted to solve. Koch inherited a fiscal crisis or the very active uh, remnants of that fiscal crisis. 
And there was a sense that the city was ungovernable. And so when, when the transit union went on strike very early in his term, he made it very clear that the city would have a plan to deal with the strike and that it would execute this plan reasonably competently and everyone would keep their spirits up and go to work. And it was a huge difference from the previous transit strike, which happened under Mayor Lindsay, and it was just chaos. And they asked people to voluntarily do things like carpool, and they didn't do it, and it didn't work, and it just added to this idea that the city was just going nowhere. So Koch embraced some of these difficulties. Then if you go into the Giuliani years, uh, both Jenkins and Giuliani, I think it's fair to say that their major existential problem was violent crime. And both of them tried to ad- address violent crime and were pretty successful with it. And uh, crime peaked during the Dinkins era. It went down for, you know, he, he hired uh, Ray Kelly. We started to put in some reforms that Mayor Giuliani picked up, expanded. And they, uh, Giuliani, of course, ended up making that problem a, a not a solved problem, but a governable problem. And then you had Bloomberg. His main focus was education. He wanted to get some control over the public school system, introduce more charter schools. And and so each of these mayors, whether they succeeded or failed or you quibble with some of the policies, they embraced what they saw as the existential problems. But if you look at de Blasio, he's never done that with the transit system. And arguably, the city... It's just it's it's never been healthier in terms of population, tax revenues, businesses here. But he really hasn't taken advantage of those good times to put in place some of the reforms that we need on the budget side, on managing the streets, that you're going to eventually, if you have a recession, someone's going to have to deal with both the problems that the recession causes, plus all of these missed opportunities that Mayor de Blasio left behind. Has the mayor not put money aside for a rainy day or? There's there's always money put aside for a rainy day, but it's never very much money in the context of the of the budget. I mean, if you're looking at a, a budget that's topping out at $100 billion a year, putting $2.5 billion aside in cash for a rainy day, putting 4 or $5 billion in a health care fund, which can be used as a rainy day fund, even though you really shouldn't. That money in a recession, that's burned through in just a few months. I mean, never, never have we saved enough money for a recession that we don't have to have painful layoffs and service cuts. I think it's interesting to contrast the transit situation with Chicago, where the mayor does have control over the transit system, and things were not good in the 1990s there. In fact, I got my start writing about urban issues by publishing a transit newsletter about Chicago, and the mayors really have, over the course of about 20 years, done a lot of work to renovate the Chicago Transit Authority's uh, elevated lines to the extent that it's probably one of the best-performing transit systems in the country right now. Uh, they they leveraged their federal delegation, um, I think, in the 2000s to get some earmarks, back when there were still earmarks, to renovate two of their worst, um, uh, most crumbling L lines. And then they've extensively used TIF revenues to rebuild stations, and they've made difficult decisions like closing the south end of the red line, which is the busiest in the system, for five months and replacing it with shuttle buses in order to do a, uh, some renovations on the system. So they're, they've, they've, you know, the mayor there has has stepped it up, uh, and that's that's something that has certainly bedeviled New York. Where, to, to be fair, the governor does control 
the transit system and and arguably the, many of the problems in New York are more driven by the governor than than by de Blasio, who's merely been neglectful. I would agree, except for one thing, which is that we can't forget the management of the streets. Like if if you look at why bus service is so bad, a lot of it has to do with not keeping parked cars out of the bus lanes it, or the, the cars, they don't have a dedicated lane in the first place enough of the time. And I think the mayor has done a pretty bad job on just day-to-day management of the streets, which is a mayoral responsibility. Right, we're talking about a guy who couldn't get carriages out of Central Park. I mean, he's really <laughs> yeah, fairly ineffective in almost everything. Well, uh, that was a pretty interesting uh Review of New York and Chicago, two of our biggest cities, uh, and uh, their, their, the, the current crisis. Uh, Nicole, Aaron, thanks for joining us. You can follow Nicole on Twitter at Nicole Gelinas. You can check out her work at City Journal and at the Manhattan Institute. Aaron, thanks for the update on Chicago. You can follow Aaron on Twitter at Aaron underscore Wren. Uh, and you can also read uh, his work at City Journal and uh, at the Manhattan Institute. Uh, we'd love to hear your comments about today's episode on Twitter at City Journal with the hashtag 10Blocks. If you like our show and want to hear more, please leave ratings and reviews on iTunes. Nicole, Aaron, thanks very much for uh, coming on the show. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.